Welcome to Splinters. This is Gary Rogowski for the Northwest Woodworking Studio. Thank you for joining us. Rough week. Rough week in the world. In my hometown. Perhaps in yours as well. As we start to emerge from our caves, all hell broke loose. Anyway, it's a, uh, it's a difficult time. I'm going to reprise a podcast from about a year ago. Mostly about checking in with yourself and your focus. I had taught a class and a student had read my book, Handmade. So, here goes. One of the students was interested in my book and actually thanked me for writing it, which I always am very humbled by. So I've decided to read just a little chapter from the end of the book that I thought was important. Here we go. This is from Handmade. The best way is to begin. Make no more excuses about how hard it is, how the timing isn't right, the weather wrong, the effort too much. Begin. Make the choice to begin, and good things will come from that. The work will be hard. It can be boring, tiring, depressing, (laughs) repetitive, not cool, not fast, and not immediately rewarding. It also has the potential to be incredibly satisfying and yield results that are astonishing. One of my very first mastery students, Carl, gave me this quote. It's a good one to remember. Until one is committed, there is hesitancy, the chance to draw back, always ineffectiveness. Concerning all acts of initiative and creation, there is one elementary truth, the ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans, that the moment one definitely commits oneself, then providence moves to. All sorts of things occur to help one that would never otherwise have occurred. A whole stream of events issues from the decision, raising in one's favor all manner of unforeseen incidents and meetings and material assistance, which no man could have dreamt would have come his way. I have learned a deep respect for one of Goethe's couplets. Quote, Whatever you can do or dream you can do, begin it. Boldness has genius, power, and magic in it. End quote. That was from W.H. Murray. Shadows. I don't want to cut corners. I want to add corners. I want shadows and places to hide. I want light hidden. I want mystery. I don't need the sleek lines of modernism speeding me to some new place. I want spots where my eye stops, where it can rest. I have had enough of velocity, enough speed for another day of my life. The days go by too quickly now as it is. I want places where I can be quiet. I want what novelist Junichiro Tanizaki says about a Japanese room, that in its dim light it has, quote, the magic of shadows. This contrasts with our world where everything must be lit up, brightened, so that no one can rest away from the light. It's fine in its way in a shopping mall or office, but it is also tiresome. Let there be places where I can sink into shadow and rest there, the darkness seen by candlelight. Does that darkness make the candle burn brighter? Does the space around an object make it stand stronger, the negative space creating the positive, the darkness helping the light? I need to be quiet. I need to be silent with my own desires. In this silence, my work and myself grow stronger. What if I didn't look for logic or for sense, but looked instead for pattern or rhythm or color? I step hard to the left and not to the right. I step on this stone instead of that one. 
Is there logic in this, or is it just the way my foot lands? But oh yes, I changed that rhythm with a skip in my step, and now I have a new pattern. And on I go, trying to listen for a sound just out of reach. In this way, my stories remind me of how my walks give me something the bench cannot, that my reason cannot. They take me to the bench and to the thoughts that fill my mind as I work. The walking gives me time to roam, my brain the time to go to places unfettered. I let it wander and then bring it back to me, and then I see what I can do with this new idea. Walking is a form of meditation. This next section is a quote from a statement I wrote for a show of furniture at the now-defunct Contemporary Craft Gallery in the year 2000. It must be something in the air there, the predictability of moisture or the gray skies that seemed to spawn so many woodworkers in the Northwest. Maybe finding a dry shop in the midst of all that humidity was enough to send these makers to their benches, surrounded by their wood and tools. But whatever the reason, this region has long seen many of these solitary types muttering to themselves as they carved, built, and turned their beautiful objects in wood. It is as if by doing this work you can capture a moment, freeze it in space, give it form, and offer it life. Of course, this takes such an enormous amount of time that you sometimes forget where you started, or the magic changes shape in mid-flight. But the beauty of delineation, the clarity, the definition of an idea can be such fun. Sometimes it all comes together for you, and it doesn't matter a bit if anyone else gets it. It satisfies something so private that it's all that counts. At other times, your energy, your focus, actually comes through and it speaks not only to you, but to someone else as well. Then again, it's only furniture. Small strokes or attempts at permanence in a fleeting life. I'm trying to evoke a sense of recognition with my work, maybe an awareness that things worth doing are worth doing well. A life is well spent devoted to this end and that somehow this has a positive effect on others. It was many years ago when I still played sports that I became involved through an invitation by a friend to attend volleyball church. It was a game that ran once a week on Sunday mornings in a meeting center called Friendly House. We lined up outside the center waiting for Herman and his wife Ruth, who had the keys, to arrive. They would let us in upstairs into the dark, old wooden gymnasium. The gym was very old, with windows high up on only two of the walls and screened off to protect them from damage. If one of the big overhead lights was hit by a ball and went out, it was almost too dark to see. The old sodium lamps would take 15 minutes to recharge and come back on. There was perhaps a foot of sidelines for people to stand on around the court, and Herman, with some helpers, would stretch a volleyball net right across the middle of the floor. Before we got to play ball, however, we were invited to sit on the floor and listen to Herman's sermon for that day. At first, I know I was too pumped to be playing ball to be able to listen to his words, but as he went on, some of what he said sunk through. He often spoke about visualization. He had worked with the Olympic team on various training aspects, and this was one. Visualize how you wanted to set yourself, where you wanted to launch and jump and hit the ball. It was odd to hear it at the time, but it made sense. Imagine where you want yourself to be. Herman also spoke about forgiveness, because in a sport like volleyball, errors are obvious and many, and they affect everyone on the team immediately. It is hard to face your teammates when committing your first or maybe your 15th error of the game. It is easier for most competitive people to stamp their feet 
throw the ball at the net, swear at themselves, and call themselves or others names. It is very difficult to forgive yourself having done something bad on the court. But he would talk week after week in his calm, sure voice about taking care of yourself, taking care of each other, even in the face of stupidity or errors on the court, of which everyone was capable. Herman would offer these homilies for us as volleyball players, as well as for our lives, to be in the moment only, to learn to forget the past mistake and focus on the present, to be forgiving of others who are doing their best. Part of the egalitarian nature of the Sunday game was its range of abilities. There were players there who could jump to the sky and crush a volleyball. I'm adding this. Uh, there was one guy, a lefty named Luke, and he could just crush the ball, just destroy it. And it would land right in front of your feet. You couldn't even get to it to dig it. And then he'd just give you this radiant smile. It, he was just such a sweet guy. He wasn't trying to show you up. He was just better than everyone else. <clears throat> those players, they played alongside those who could barely pass the ball on their best days, who had trouble running the floor and difficulty with the coordination of one foot or hand with the other. Teams were chosen by random count as we stood around on the walls of the gymnasium, and you paired or tripled or quadrupled up as the crowd swelled or waned that week. The first two teams went off onto the court to play. Losers sat. Winners stayed on the floor for three rounds at most, and then they too sat. It's a hard game with only two or three people covering a full court. You have to communicate. You have to be respectful of another's abilities. Try to be a good teammate or risk being booed off the floor as a ball hog. We all heard the sermons, but we also knew the folks who were easy to play with and those who used up a lot of oxygen in the building. Some of us would move a body or two over before the counting began in order to even teams up or play with a friend. In any event, it was a game that had its time in the sun, perhaps for 10 years, and then it faded away, as did we all. I had occasion some years later to do some work for Herman and Ruth. It was repair work, and I had to fix a coat rack with some new wooden hooks. These were nothing for me to do, but after that work, every time I saw them, they both raved about the beauty of these wooden hooks. One day, after running into Herman on the street and listening to him praise me for that simple job, he said he had a story to send me. Here it is. Cobbler's story. Hi, Gary. May I give you a story as promised? The story is told that if you were a young person in medieval France embarking on a spiritual quest, if you were fortunate, you might meet up with someone older, perhaps a teacher, who would say this to you. I think I understand what you are seeking. Let me give you the name of someone I know, a cobbler in Dijon. I think that it might work out well if you were to become his apprentice. If that happens, let me give you one piece of advice. Don't talk with him about spiritual matters. Just let him teach you how to make shoes. So time passes and you find yourself in Dijon, and you seek out the cobbler. Sure enough, as it works out, you become his apprentice. Years pass and you learn how to make shoes. Year after year, you measure people's feet. You watch them walk. You listen as they tell you about their work, their daily activities, their lives, their yearnings. You make their shoes, you modify their shoes, you repair their shoes. Your shoes tell stories. You make wonderful shoes that enrich people's lives. More time passes, and one day the cobbler says to you, You have become a fine cobbler. Your fingers listen to the leather, and your heart listens to the people who will wear your shoes. I am growing old, and soon I will reach the end of my life. 
I want to leave this shop in your hands. You begin to protest, but the cobbler goes on, Now hear me. One day a young person will come to you on some kind of spiritual quest. If it works out for this person to become your apprentice, let me give you one piece of advice. Don't talk with him about spiritual matters. Just teach your apprentice how to make shoes. Warmly, Herman. I have four decades at the bench. I know several others with just as much time. I'm not saying that this is something special. But I do know that those years have made a difference in my life, in my time. And, and I feel lucky to be at the bench, even though it's a struggle. Most every single day, struggling with myself and my ineptitude and my waning abilities. Sometimes they wax, but it's always a struggle. For me, that's why I wrote this book. This book was written for me. I'm glad that many of you uh, have read it and appreciate it, but it's the struggle that I, that I have trying to forgive myself at the bench. That is the, the most important and the hardest. I'm a pretty good woodworker. But there are days when I just seem to have my head on backwards. A quote my father used to regale me with often. So those things that we grow up with, those images we have of ourselves and our abilities are the things that get in our way. It's not the work and it's not the tools. It's, it's ourselves. And so get to a bench. It is the important place to be, to be quiet with yourself, to do the work that you were sent here to do. And if you can have an effect on other people's lives, what a great thing that is. Thanks very much for listening. This was my <laughs> volleyball homily. Boy, I wish I could play volleyball again. I missed that game. It was a lot of fun. In any event, uh, please visit our website, northwestwoodworking.com. Buy me a coffee, drop me a note, and uh, ask me a question. I'm happy to answer questions about uh, any and all topics. Uh, European monetary policy, perhaps, uh, but woodworking is certainly my bailiwick. So uh, feel free to drop me a line and uh, ask me a question. Thanks again for listening. I appreciate it. Take care. Bye-bye.